0: Welcome to Sports and Society. We've got an extra special episode to you today, coming to you on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, how you doing, Kyle?
1: I am doing well and definitely looking forward to the conversation to be. It's going to be a good, a good one.
0: Um yes so, it, it, having our first guests in quite a while on I will warn everyone that uh, uh there is uh some explicit language which I was quite excited to hear during the coming conversation. Uh, <laughs> so give you a warning on.
1: Yeah and it's a much needed to
0: our conversation. <laughs> yeah we're, we're grateful. Oh, so really exciting conversation coming up with we'll introduce you to in just a moment but Kai what are you been paying attention to this week man? So
1: Amongst several things that stood out, uh, what really caught my attention was a story from last night that I caught on to this morning of uh, Becky Hammond, the assistant coach for the San Antonio Spurs. There was a video that went semi viral in Sports Watching World of her pushing Pop to challenge a call, which on first glance, it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But I think if you pause a second and ask why is this newsworthy, it becomes newsworthy insofar as I can't recall any other video ever being published showing an assistant coach doing their job. Uh, But because it was Becky Hammond doing it, it becomes a story. And so in that way, I think the story becomes a little bit of a slight uh, and it becomes revealing of uh, the unfair, unrealistic and discriminatory expectations uh, that are placed on her. So this isn't the only time that her doing something very, very normal has become a sports story. So it's just kind of another example of that happening. Um, So that's kind of what stood out for me. Uh, Very quickly, I've also gotten really intrigued by Amish (laughs) baseball, uh, which I honestly was completely ignorant of, but have started reading into it and learning about it, and it's quite fascinating. So I won't dig into it now other than to point out that in the future, for me, as a discussion on Amish okay, baseball well I look
0: forward to that discussion i'm uh, I'm quite intrigued yeah uh, Hello, so you. I think the big thing for me has been this uh major league baseball situation and them not seeming to handle the um Houston Astros cheating situation particularly well, and perhaps what that says more broadly, even about the state of cheating in our modern sports um particularly American sports where we've had. A number of these situations come up from the saints and the patriots and uh, football to the astros here we saw a number of folks lose their job but the team kept a world series banner somehow through all of this um just a, some really fascinating ways that the league struggle to deal with cheating and and that it's as, as pervasive as it's ever been
1: I think in addition to many things that are significant and important about this whole story, I am struck by how even in articles and news stories that are claiming how important and significant it is, it still comes across as Mm -hmm. expected or at least like really not all that surprising at all, uh, which is maybe a red flag on a whole lot of things, probably probably Number one of which are really low expectations for the professional sports mm-hmm. world.
0: It is true. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Uh, it's. It wasn't surprising when I first saw it. It wasn't like, oh, well, that's disappointing. It was more like okay. And then when I saw mm-hmm. the other teams' responses, that was what was almost more interesting to me. That it was bad enough that some teams felt the need to make passive-aggressive statements and things like this. So, right. Right. Yeah. Who knows? It's uh, it's, it's it kind of lays bare the hypocrisy of it all. Indeed. Well, why don't we uh, uh, take a well? short break and we'll be back with our very exciting guest for the day.
1: Alrighty, sounds good.
0: Well, we're going to dig into kind of our main topic now, which is this idea of fandom. And what do we think about that? How it's being taught to us? How we understand it? uh, Kind of all the facets of it. But uh, really excited to have a special guest here. And, Kyle, do you want to share a little bit about who that is?
1: Sure. We are thrilled to have Steve Allman with us. He is the author of 10 books of fiction and nonfiction, including New York Times bestsellers Candy Freak and Against Football. His new book is called William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life. Uh, According to Steve's website, it's about reading and writing and the struggle to pay attention to our lives. And no stranger to podcasting, Steve co-hosted the podcast Dear Sugars with Cheryl Strayed for four years. And at the top here, I would like to say personally that in my path towards continually unraveling Masculinity and toxic masculinity and how it plays out in my life uh steve steve's work has uh, been a real anchor for me uh something to latch on to and emulate and so for those reasons and others we're really grateful to have you on steve thanks for being here
2: yeah my pleasure i'm i'm, I'm eager to talk with you guys about all forms of fandom great
1: so we thought it would be kind of worthwhile and interesting to maybe hear a little bit from you about your introduction to and relationship with sports kind of through the lens of fandom. Uh, so kind of how you came to be a sports mm-hmm. fan and maybe just kind of very generally at the start, uh, the role that it's kind of played in your life. So mm-hmm. wonder if you could speak to that a little bit.
2: Sure. So, you know, one of the interesting things about writing against football and then talking with a bunch of people you know it's it's it was marketed as and i understand why as a kind of polemic you know it's this guy who's gonna take apart football and it's moral iniquity and so forth and it is partly that it's definitely an interrogation of like the whole industry and the undertaking and all of the Um, I think, sort of implicit values that it's expressing and and, um, how how those don't really line up with most people's non-football fan values. But the more basic way of looking at it is that it's a book about loving something a lot and then starting to ask why you love it and what it means that you love it. And in the course of, because it's written from the perspective of a fan and the first two or three chapters are all about my relationship to football and how much i loved it and love it and love watching it and loved playing it a lot of people talk with me about how they became fans and especially women is is, is really interesting because you you realize and i think every parent maybe realizes this if they step back from the experience of just like how much power they hold to influence their kids you really come to things not in intuitively, we have this myth of like, I just came to it on my own, or it just appealed to me and spoke to me. It's like, no, what happens is things are put into your proximity, and, and they are important to people who are important to you, and then they become important to you. This was very obvious when I spoke with female football fans, because they would all describe some version of a father, um, a, you know, a brother's uh, you know, uh, boyfriends or, or male partners who were super into football. And that was how they got into football. And the realization that it really wasn't something that was on their radar and it became important and meaningful, but only after somebody else who they wanted to be in proximity to really kind of brought them to it. And that's how my relationship with um, with with sports came about as well. I didn't just decide the Oakland Raiders in the 1970s were like this amazing rebel team that I wanted to root for. My dad watched the games. That was one way of being close to him. My older brother played soccer, so I got really into soccer. My friends were all kind of little jocks, so I got good at those things as well. I loved it. I loved playing tackle the pill uh, you know, and, and flag football in, in elementary school. I can remember that I was one of those kids running around just getting pleasure from the act of tackling and being tackled and trying to fake somebody out and there are real intuitive pleasures to that that reside in the body that have nothing to do with anybody else's influence they're like organic joy but most of fandom comes from i think proximity to somebody else who gets you into it and this is true of sports certainly but it's also true of music and it's true of literature and you know, it's true of pretty much anything you can be a fan of. Somebody brings you to it. Um, so that was how I got into both um, both playing and watching sports. My dad was a fan. My uncle, who was a big, important figure in my life, was a very serious athlete and a very serious fan. My grandfather was a fan. Um, and, you know, s- then you start hanging out with kids for whom sports is powerful and meaningful And then you're in that ecosystem and your life is operating around what happened at the Stanford game, you know, or what happened to the 49ers or the Raiders or the Golden State Warriors or the Oakland A's. And then really, for me, like I can remember how powerfully sports was kind of like a babysitter. I'm growing up in the 70s in the Bay Area. And, you know, not only was I actively rooting for the Raiders every Sunday, but like almost every single day, there was an A's game. And even though the A's were terrible, I would listen to them because I formed an attachment to all the players. Dwayne Murphy, the drag bunt artist, Ricky Henderson, you know, was a hugely important figure. Just sit in my room and imitate his particular inimitable stance at the plate and how he would steal bases and what his hand, how his hands would twitch when he was preparing to run. And, you know, that stuff all kind of, is carved into the neural pathways and almost into the sort of your limbic system. Um, and so it's not like I had no choice, but it took a while for the other parts of my personality that love language and writing and reflecting and trying to make meaning um, for those parts to kind of catch up. I was a, a sort of a fan and a jock before anything else.
1: That's fascinating. It. It makes me think about several things. One in which of is how significant that proximity piece is. And you mentioned becoming one that wants to derive and make meaning or explore this topic and idea of making meaning and how powerful those forces of proximity are for doing the meaning-making for us. Right. Uh, I always think in my case that my personal fandom was almost holistically tied to being able to have a conversation with other men in my
2: life. Oh, yeah.
1: And just being able to hold my own in that space necessitated that I read and pour over the newspapers and watch Sports Center, you know, four hours every Saturday as a little kid. Uh, yep. Just how powerful that proximity piece is.
0: Well, and I, I think... Yeah, I mean, go ahead, Steve. Sorry.
2: Well, no, it's, it's just you... Like there was a review uh, of of um, my of against football and another football book that was in the Washington Post. I, it had a bunch of factual errors, and I found it to be a deeply superficial review, but really revealing. And the lead was something like, you know, I remember going to this. It was an old white guy writing it. I remember going to this gathering, and it was very state. <laughs> and we had no way to really relate to one another. But then I found out that the big, important alpha male was a fan of the Chicago Bears, and so was I. And we, could su- we suddenly had a language to speak to one another, and it was so uh, important to us to have that bridge. And to me it's like, and this is going to sound pretty harsh, but it's just kind of like the truth, I think. Men are socialized in such a way that it's so difficult for them to simply express who they are, figure out who they are, and express who they are and try to share that with another man, that they just have this entire world that is is whose central purpose is to allow them to have a discourse that feels emotionally safe and that is like authentically heterosexual. They mm-hmm. can obsess you know, over X, Y, and Z, and they have this common language. And I know exactly what you're talking about, the way you study the box scores and gather expertise and opinions in a way. This is what the sort of sports talk world does is kind of present the alpha version of that so that it's easy to mock and deride. And I do think there are ways in which it's totally toxic and sort of fomenting the same grievance that has gotten us into so much trouble morally and politically as a culture. But the other place, the other way of looking at it is as a place of refuge where men who can't connect in other ways can go to try to connect in a way that feels safe.
0: Well, I think there's also a a really interesting piece even beyond that that proximity piece in terms of uh, laying down who we want to be. And I think that comes down to some of these same questions of who we are, um, who we're around when we're growing up, who we see and idolize in some ways. And that the sports that we pick are in some ways, uh, I think, uh, and and the way that we relate to them are seeking to be that person that we may not be or that, that we may not be around all the time. You know, I think about personally, my father was not very big into sports. Um, and yet I still found myself pouring over these things every day. And it's not necessarily cause I had anyone to talk to it about, but it made me feel a certain way in that moment. It made me feel like a part of this very manly or whatever it might be conversation. And I think that that goes into, you know, my current fatuation with things like Arsenal football club, where it's not necessarily that, um, I had a bunch of friends who were Arsenal fans and wanted to do that or had a bunch of soccer friends, Premier League friends that wanted to do that. But it was about the part of my identity of who I strive to be. And I wonder if if we see some of that as well, if we think that being a football fan or being a baseball fan, that there's something about this is that this is what American men are supposed to be. And, that, and so then it pushes us to be in that space more. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you
2: at one of the events I did, this woman brought up this kind of point that was so um it's like you know kind of telling making the fish aware that they're swimming in water we're we're all so acclimated to it that it doesn't even occur to us but think about if you removed from sort of cultural conditioning and our various sort of social systems think about if you removed organized competitive sports you could still do things that were cooperative, that were team building, you know, that were individual achievement, rock climbing or this, that or the other. But you just removed the organized sports part of it um, and you removed it at all levels. I don't I don't even think we can conceive of a culture that's organized in that way. It's it, it feels, um, you know, again, just intuitively and immediately like some very different kind of social structure that we've never seen. Maybe it existed in Amazonia. It would be the only way you could think, well, maybe it must be a matriarchal society that would operate that way. Because it's so foreign to our way of thinking that you would somehow remove that huge component, which doesn't just operate in the world of the industrial, athletic industrial complex. It literally is the substrate for capitalism, that you are competing to try to establish power and a sense of selfhood and dominion Um, And that means if you're going to win, somebody else has to lose like that is baked into the way that we regard ourselves, not just as, um, you know, sort of potential sports competitors or fans, but like citizens, wage earners, um, you you know, human beings are really kind of programmed in American culture to, if not be a fanatical fan, understand that the prevailing power systems operate around competition, not always violent. Um, physically, but certainly sort of psychologically and emotionally aggressive competition in which the only way really for you to win is for somebody else to lose.
1: And how often, I wonder, is it true that the misperception of what is primal is used as a defense for the patriarchy or these oppressive systems, right? That when those in power stand behind the defense of like this is just what I feel like we play this way because we have to this is who and what we are which in turn serves to reify what is already there doing the oppressing so therein kind of lies what makes it so inconceivable of something other
2: yeah I think I, I really think we're sort of seeing a lot of that undressed in, in, in over the course of the last certainly three or four years, but even before that, you know the, the sort of the central innovation that um, sort of demagogues and bad political actors figure out is that there is this primal set of primal negative emotions that live within everybody. I think their home capital is kind of aggrieved white men who have had power and have abused it and who are sort of unconsciously terrified that if it's taken away from them, they'll be treated as badly as they treated the women and people of color who they've had dominion over. But you can see that if you sort of look at the history of it, um, conflict is the default system. for At this point, that is really there's no penalty for it that you can always get the desired response by poking at people's primal negative emotions that's not proof that that is the healthiest way to uh, you know for a culture or society to run it, it's all it is is proof that it's the most effective way if you want to manipulate people's feelings and then the justification is always this is just who we are we're all this ugly we're all this indecent we're all this deplorable don't try to deny it or you're living a lie and i'm being truthful because i am overt i'm saying things that other people can only think and my response to that is that's right lots of people i i do think that that's right that within us is a lot of aggression and frustration and grievance and so forth and like our job, essentially, especially as parents, if you think about it, I mean, think about if you acted on every nasty impulse you had as a parent. (laughs) Think about how (laughs) how that would be if you acted on every primal negative feeling you had as a partner. I mean, that is where rape culture comes from. That's where battering comes from. That's where child abuse comes from. If you just let all of that stuff out and say, hey, I've just got to be me, the whole frigging point of trying to lead a, a decent life and sort of what's codified in the best of religious credo is yes we are born with iniquity we are born with evil urges with with urges to to hurt and destroy and out of defense to be aggressive and so forth and we spend our lives hopefully trying to reckon with that and manage them not deny them not pretend that they don't exist but actively manage them so that the best parts of us can emerge and not the worst parts so I get that argument. I've heard that argument a zillion times, um, and I sort of say, "Yeah, that's why you try to turn the corner into adulthood, and that means you have to say goodbye yeah. to certain childish things." And, and one of those childish things is saying, "Well, I have a negative emotion, therefore I have to visit it upon somebody else."
0: This I, th- I find this to be a fascinating line in terms of. Um, it makes me wonder what we have to do if the goal is to kind of move beyond this state where we're letting these these primal urges or whatever we want to call them uh, take control and in, in football or baseball or sports of any kind is a is a vehicle that reinforces that those things are inherent and that we need to allow them free reign and we need to allow them to come out in our lives in some ways it makes me wonder um if we need to find some kind of replacement for them in our lives, something that, uh, you know, I think about my marriage and my daughter has changed how I view sports. Um, but I, I wonder in a broader sense, if there's something that's gives us a sense of possibility about moving beyond that and replacing those kind of feelings with a sense of more adulthood and, and, and control in some ways.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that we have, um, created, uh, I think there's a great, what's essentially happened is that, uh, kind of late model capitalism has collided, uh, with, um, the, the sort of, uh, leisure industry. And if you think about, um, for instance, pushing people in a direction that would get them to read books or watch films, or write books, or make films, or make plays, or make poetry, or make music. Those are all things that are definitely happening. But if you can make people into, primarily into consumers, and you can make consumption as pleasurable as possible, and you can sort of hit just the right combination of Primal positive emotions, appreciating the genius of a particular athlete's play, understanding the the strategic density of a football game or a soccer match, a beautiful run, and understanding the significance of that run. And, you know, really kind of the positive aspects of fandom, um, connecting with other people who feel passionate as well, finding a way to... Um, connect with people who you might not otherwise or more deeply with people who you can't really find a way in with male relatives, for instance, like all of that is very positive. But it's if you can get people hooked on consuming and sitting back and being passive consumers, it's a lot more profitable Hmm. than if people are steered in the direction of making, you know, playing sports themselves, or, um, you know, making some kind of art or some kind of exploration of the inner life. There's no money in that stuff. There's no money in people sitting around reading books because in the same amount of time that it might take for somebody to read uh, a a beautiful, interesting novel, you can have if you get them in the mode of sitting back and watching a really exciting game, you can have them, you know, they'll they'll watch seven hours of advertising and presumably through the sort of osmosis of our unconscious and our buying habits will end up becoming good consumers going out and buying or ordering from Amazon whatever products they, they need to feel like, oh, you know, I guess sort of whole and, and worthy in the world. So I think that a lot of this is at the level of the way that cop- capitalism operates to turn people into passive consumers rather than makers of meaning in one way or another or art, uh, you know, or, or just experiences, um, going out to the park. And this is the thing that, to me, it's like people say, oh, against football, you must like hate all forms of football. I'm like, actually, if people want to go play football, if they want to incur the risks themselves or play two-hand touch, I think that's a wonderful thing to do, as is soccer and baseball and you know pretty much anything other than like boxing, where you're <laughs> almost guaranteed to cause cognitive damage just in the course of doing it. I guess there maybe are ways to just be in the gym and, and have it be, you know, uh, a form of exercise and and competition that isn't deleterious to to cognitive function. But if you see what I mean, I'm I'm all for there being uh, people being, I think we'd be better off if people were more physically active and were engaged in, um, you know, kind of forms of sports I played for years played softball and it was great it was you know there was it wasn't organized though you were on one team one week and another team another week and there was no teams that you were playing it was kind of just to have fun to collaborate with the team to hope that you made a good play uh it's that changing things to where we're just the passive consumers kind of fan culture that feels to me like it winds up um Putting people in a position of just sitting back and consuming, rather than going out and making whatever it is—a play, or a, a, you know, a, a, an athletic game, or a piece of music, or a dance, or just you know, walking through nature in some way—none of that is profitable to, to the man.
1: Right. It makes me think about my own arrival to a, a space wherein I felt permitted to voice a different avenue for digesting sports and i still have trouble even in my own memories locating exactly when and where and why and how that happened i think in large part it was due to you brad I i think the conversations we had were gradually altogether different than the conversations i was forced to have in other hyper-masculine spaces. So in one way, I think it was that. I point to the website Grantland. Um, Bill Simmons' website w- was really pivotal for me for exercising and exploring alternative ways of uh, looking at sports. And so I'm wondering maybe for both of you, uh, as you kind of trace back when and where it was, like sports were something that you could talk about poetically or in the outside the normal code.
2: Yeah. I mean, for sure. I, I remember very powerfully, and this is the reason that I um, wrote about it in Against Football, reading um, Don DeLillo's um, End Zone and, and reading um, A Fan's Note by Frederick Exley. Um, and both of those books were profound for me. And also, actually, speaking of Arsenal, reading um, Fever Pitch, mm-hmm. the Nick yeah. book. and I think maybe he's my favorite of his books because it it was getting at something so powerful about why people are drawn to particular teams and how it helps a certain kind of person, usually a young boy, um, figure out how to live in the in the male world and how to connect to, usually a father, but if not a father, you know, friends, older brothers, um, you know, kind of important men in their lives, to have a language, a lingua franca, but to see the writing in those books was for me revelatory because I no longer was therefore just saying, oh, this is a silly childish thing I have to put away. I was able to say, oh, actually the fact that I'm so interested in this and that it's so important to me and it takes up so much of my mental and psychological and emotional real estate means that it does have deep meaning. I might not have bothered to think about what it means, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't mean a lot to me. And, Started me, I guess, thinking about sports in a different way and writing about it in a different way. Even when I was a journalist, um, I was writing pieces that were trying to understand what is the nature of fandom um, and how does it take root? I remember being in Miami when they had three different um, franchises that started up, the Florida Panthers and the Marlins and what was the third one, the Heat. And, you know, for me as a lifelong fan who will never switch allegiances, I was kind of astonished at the at the idea of like, wow, you could just start a team and Mm -hmm. growing fresh fans right from from seed. Um, And, you know, there is no long tradition to point to. But at the same time, it exposes how artificial the whole setup is. I mean, ultimately, what you realize is it's it's very important to you, but you are kind of rooting for laundry there's this like business that's going on and then you're rooting for these particular players, but their relationship to that team is partly emotional, but mostly economic. You
1: know?
0: Yeah. Hmm. You know, I think uh, fever pitch was there for me, but I think it, it's even more my introduction when I think about soccer in terms of this was a sport that I had not grown up with. And I think about it in terms of, um, there's a particular goal that I remember seeing scored. Uh, 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 there's a long ball up front. Emmanuel Adebayor had a black heel to bring it down to Thierry Henry from about 21 yards, and he curled it into the top court. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that was beautiful. I have never seen an athletic play that was as beautiful as that was. Um, and that sparked an interest in me that I think comes back to – my understanding of all the sports I grew up with now. And so it's more looking for that, that beauty in, in that moment um, and yeah. understanding what goes into it. I mean, I, uh, even though I'm not watching football these days, um, I still have an immense respect for the amount of strategy that goes into it. And that still fascinates me in somewhat the same way that, I'm fascinated by something like the the Hoover Dam, which I know is incredibly destructive but is an amazing feat of engineering. And so I think uh, I, I take kind of a step back when I see that beauty and say, wow, okay. Now, knowing what I know now about soccer, there are incredibly uh, uh, terrible things happening in that sport as well. The masculinity is no less than it is perhaps anywhere else. It just took that moment of beauty to kind of st- strike me out of that uh, more utilitarian perspective. Mm -hmm. It's
2: transcendence. That's what you're describing. And I think every fan, one of the things that that, one of the reasons that they um, get so freaked out when um, they hear me talk or, you know, hear rumor of against football or even a book with that title is they have this understandable feeling of like, my God, this guy is going to take this away from me. Mm -hmm. He's going to try to take away this beautiful transcendent thing that's almost occupies a kind of holy space. Something about seeing uh, somebody's intuitive improvisational grace and athleticism, the particular genius of them seeing and then being able to summon into their body a possibility that nobody else could have uh, foreseen. Like, that's genuinely miraculous. But it also exists in lots of contexts. Picasso was doing that all the time, Mozart did that every five minutes. You know what I mean? There's like, there's lots of ways. that that it is some and I I, um, I, I guess that's not to take and it's it's not ultimately sort of uh, a competition it's like that is a natural and positive response to sort of the remarkable ingenuity of what human beings can do and that I do think is one of the positive legacies of um, being a species that's conscious of itself. You, You can imagine that the same kind of wonder must have obtained When um, somebody, when a human being uh, or a hominid developed the capacity to use a tool in a new way or to start a fire, you know, everybody must have just gone, holy crap. Wow, read the box score on that. Like, that's remarkable. How did you do that? (laughs) And that, I think, that kind of wonder is one of the parts of fandom that I think is beautiful and holy. And I don't want to take it away from anyone, but unfortunately... It's attached to the rest of the endeavor, which is, you know, as we're talking about with Premier League football, the NFL or football in general, it's like it's attached to a huge industry that's got all these other agendas and kind of implicit moral actions.
0: You know, um, I'm struck there by your mention of comparing it to art in some ways, because I think that's, you know, I have not put this together before, but I think there's something there as well in terms of we, when you're saying these things and someone feels like it's being risked. Uh, something you're taking away from them. I think there's often a feeling that there's nothing that can go into that space. Um, and, you know, I can certainly say that um, I struggle with most art. I, I'm an avid reader, and so I get uh, the written word, but I often don't get other types of uh, uh, art, whether they be performance or, or um, uh, painting or whatever it may be. But I also have to remind myself that I've spent an entire life developing appreciation for sports in a way that I have not for art. And I wonder how my understanding of that transcendence would be different if I had devoted time to it and wondering what, um, you know, kind of sharing that education. If you're not having to give this up, we can find this transcendence in other spaces. And it's just a matter of maybe learning a little bit about these spaces. One of the best, maybe the best class I ever
2: took in in any of my education was was an art history class that I took in high school. It was an elective. And it was just an old guy uh, every day we'd come into the room, he'd turn off the lights, and he just took us through the great painters from Van Eyck up to, I don't know, Jim Dine and Andy Warhol. So we're literally talking about every every painter, um, you know, uh, uh, um, Bruegel um, and uh, Goya uh, and, and, you know, certainly Monet and Manet and Picasso and uh, Van Gogh. And to just be in a dark room every day and have the lights turned out and just have these giant um uh pe- canvases projected uh onto onto a at that time it was a projector um was very moving and I don't know crap about visual art but I I it was almost miraculous to me I, I can still remember the feeling of just literally being immersed and all he would do is talk about the canvases and what the painter was doing and a little bit of basic stuff. Um, and it was incredibly moving. And I thought, wow, man, I wish education would just do more of this, Will you just subject whoever is signed up for that elective, or maybe everybody, to um, just in a very unjudgmental way, exposing them to great painters. And because I now feel like yeah, they were up to something. Even if I wasn't crazy about what they were doing or their aesthetic wasn't as exciting to me, every one of them is doing something remarkable that I love and appreciate as much as an amazing football play. Um, But there are, you know, these huge gaps in our education where if somebody's not exposed to that, then they feel like basically excluded from it. And also in the worst instance, like it's sort of Feet and looking down their nose, like, oh, I, you know, I don't like visual art. Which is really a way of saying I was never exposed to it. I don't understand it, and it makes me feel stupid.
1: That raises for me this on on two fronts. One is the aesthetic beauty and power within a highlight reel. Yeah, and what highlight reels mean for fandom and the athletic industrial complex in and of itself. Uh, which also maybe could lead into talking about the changing ways in which we're watching sports. And uh, I might be curious to hear how we think kind of the clickbait version of digesting sports might be affecting fandom and how we think and talk about it.
2: Um, Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, just it's fascinating. You were talking about ESPN before. And years ago, I wrote... um, tried to write a novel about sports talk radio because I was so fascinated by the two things that were going on at once that there was this kind of aggrieved fan space of I'm always the victim somebody's always ripping me off and the way that people's grievance was being stoked um and and I could clearly at that time see that it was connected to what was happening in our political discourse but the other side of it was that there was all this meaning in sports and that Uh, kind of civilian culture was missing it. And also that the way that we were consuming it was becoming so much more pervasive and powerful. I think of it as like the way that pot is now. In the old days, you had your THC content, and it was whatever, you know, small percentage. And now they're sort of genetically engineering that experience so that you just are completely intoxicated by it. It's much more potent. And that to me is what ESPN figured out those montages where they, you know, summarize a game in a minute and a half or two minutes with this sort of alpha male sportscaster saying all the perfectly syncopated, uh, you know, in the know kind of things that you would say to prove that you're inside the game and also have this verbal panache. And those highlight reels are like the incredibly powerful hydroponic pot, the crack cocaine of... Um, the fandom experience you know you sort of ingest them and you're kind of engorged with this sense of athletic possibility and machismo and omnipotence and it's just coursing through you and, and it's different than if you go back and look at the way that sports was consumed 30 40 50 years ago um it, which feels like like films from the 60s or 70s or even 80s really slow really plotting um, you know they just don't know how to juice that bliss point in the way that I think ESPN figured it out And so I think you know that's what you, that's what red Zone is all about don't give me the boring plotting in the middle right. of the world. just give me the money shot give me all the like best most dramatic plays um, It's a way of kind of intensifying, and making more potent that fan experience.
1: In a, in a true industrial complex, in, in a very meta way, I find it fascinating to think about the fact that there are now highlight reels of ESPN commentators <laughs> voicing highlights. Right? There was a lot of social capital in, me- in middle school. Right. Uh, and the more you could pepper them in a conversation, the more you revealed yourself to be on the end, you know, right.
2: that's right. Exactly. I mean, an interesting example of that in football is the show. I forget what it was called, but it was basically a show that showed all the most dramatic hits. Yeah. And it had to be, you know, this is this dance that football has to do because it's so obviously, you know, causes these brain injuries. But at one time like that was the porn was like only every absolutely cranium crushing smack where i can hear the bones crunching and i can hear the helmet and the neck snapping back like that was exciting and um you know now they can't do that anymore they have to pretend that that's not a part of what fans are getting off on um but you know as 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 any number of people have revealed, like, nope, that's a part of it. We just have to pretend that it's not the part we're interested in anymore.
0: Mm. Well, I'm intrigued, Steve, kind of, where do you find yourself lying these days? Where do you engage with sports most often? What does your fandom look like these days?
2: Well, um, you know, the, the 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 nice thing to say would be like the the thing I wish I could say is oh I don't pay any attention to that. <laughs> <But> the <laughs> truth is like when when you know when I had to go off football because I wrote a whole book to sort of try to get me away from it, um, I turned to basketball. I was lucky enough that the teams I only root for the teams I rooted for growing up. I've kind of like you know refused to adapt to new teams. That's one of my versions of loyalty, doomed loyalty. But fortunately, the Golden State Warriors got really good. And so I could just transfer all that attention and all that devotion to them. I will say that as the kids have gotten older and more encompassing and as my life has felt more crowded and it's been easier to sort of say farewell to certain things, I've gotten interested. The World Cup has become fascinating to me um, and English premier highlights. That's something I'll do. I feel like if I if I can you know, watch a, a 12 minute, high, I've, I've gotten into tennis and watching sort of Federer as he's trying to hang on and just his, his genius. So I, I definitely have found things to fill the, the void, but I do not spend as much time, um, just watching, uh, ex, you know, watching sports. I probably play, uh, I play squash, which is kind of silly, but it's the form of, of exercise I like because it's competitive, but it, Get you a lot of exercise. So I do that like two or three times a week. And I would say I probably spent an equivalent amount of time, two or three hours watching highlights of various kinds of sports.
0: Hmm. It is, I think an under, under appreciated aspect of the whole thing was when I stopped watching football, how much time I had that immediately freed up in my life that I think. Uh, we could all probably do with a little bit more or less stressful and more time on the weekends to just do whatever we want to do. Um,
2: yeah, I mean the tough thing is that you miss out on certain experiences. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the Super Bowl is going to come up and um, you know, like usually that that's kind of like a huge secular holiday. Or maybe it's not secular, maybe it's deeply religious at this point. <laughs> but like you know, that's not something I do anymore. It's helped by the fact that, you know, my wife has no interest in that. My, none of my kids are, are, are sporty kids. Um, if, but then again, that's a cause and effect thing. It's because if I'm watching sports, it's sort of understood to be something I shouldn't be doing, that I sort of hide away in my office and watch highlights of a, you know, Liverpool game or whatever it is. But I don't any longer really go out with friends to watch a game And I used to do that, not a ton, but I used to do that. And um, that's no longer a part of it anymore. But I I can't say that I don't miss it because there's something really um, comforting and, you know, really basically very comforting about knowing that I'm going to go out, have a bunch of greasy food, talk with my friends, and definitely will, by the third quarter, we'll be getting into some of the real shit, but like there's a game there to. Mm -hmm us to in a very low level, simple, childlike, everybody can figure it out kind of way to relate. Um, it's like a you know, kind of like a, 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 a learning aid for for people who have difficulty emotionally and psychologically connecting without a pretext. Um, so i I do miss that. I miss that feeling of like, yeah, we're just gonna do nothing. Except watch this idiotic game and try to be cool and you know uh, and and uh, some interesting and important things might sneak out in the margins, but nothing too heavy is going to happen.
1: Mm. Those are powerful, meaning meaningful moments in my life. The times where I've had that space, and yeah. there there is something about to what you're saying, Brad, about the time that we're offered on the other side and a version of a life that maybe we didn't know was there if we're not watching 12 hours of college football on Saturday uh been like to uh, designate yourself or situate yourself in a space that is uh, a little bit outside what we would maybe call that mainstream space for consumerist fandom yeah and and, and i ask partly as a very personally, like it, it can be hard for me to be around my friends that don't have much uh, space or generosity for where I am on some of those things. Yeah, uh, And it's difficult to not operate in kind of a what feels like an elitist space, similar to if one would be like a Van Gogh expert standing next to me looking at a Van Gogh that doesn't know that much. It would be easy for me if I felt insecure or defensive to lash out or the name card or, or anything to bring that person down off what feels like a pedestal so yeah. I'm wondering since you've written this book and continue to talk about it what has it been like operating in that space
2: yeah I mean it's it's so interesting to me it's all part of this same con that's like don't think about things deeply don't morally interrogate them that makes you a pussy that makes you a faggot that makes you politically correct that makes you an elitist Right. It's all a way of. It's all a big pile of bullshit that's trying to say, basically, don't make me think about the moral implications of what I'm doing. Otherwise, you're the bad guy, and the problem is you're, you know, you. And I, I just don't have any patience for it. Like I've, mm-hmm. as a fan, for 40 years, I carried around my little suitcase of rationalizations. I still have it. I still dip into it when I want to watch an illicit highlight reel but I know what I'm doing. Um, you know, the reason that the athletic industrial complex exists is because people need that or want that kind of, um, easy, pleasurable entertainment and they don't want to have to think about the other side of it. It's the basic setup of, of American culture. You know, everybody wants a bacon cheeseburger, but nobody wants to visit the slaughterhouse. It's like the most fucking basic thing right and so i i understand what you're saying but part of it for me is like i don't need to like I, I i'm not i don't go around saying to people you shouldn't do this that or the other with your time you shouldn't watch a game you should but if they want to say hey the problem is that bob Kraft is a jerk or that this player is greedy or that roger goodell I'm like i'm going to call bullshit on that because that's not the problem the problem is they are symptoms. The problem is that enough people have decided that this undertaking is so important to them in all these different ways that there is this system of incentives. That's really perverse. And I don't have to explain to somebody why I am fighting against those adopting those incentive systems. I don't have to make them feel like a jerk for having them, but I'm not right. going to pretend they don't exist. Right. And, you know, so I, I don't, I'm very acclimated to um, to that. I, I feel like my job in against football wasn't to say to fans, um, you know you're jerks, you shouldn't w- watch these games. That makes you part of an evil system. Here are all the you know negative effects of that system that that's not It's simply to say here's the reality of what this sport means. And here are all the things. beautiful, laudable. Remarkable, transcendent, miraculous, destructive, toxic, angry—you uh, know—tied into our delusions about who gets opportunity in our culture and for what they get that opportunity. Uh, you know, I'm—it's I, I, all of those things at once, and I'm—I have very little patience for people who want to who just want to cherry pick off the menu. Those are the people who wind up following false you know gods and demagogues and bad political actors because they just choose off the menu what makes it okay and you know i feel like it's okay for me to hold myself to account and if that threatens other people it's because maybe some part of them is not doesn't want to be held to that standard but that's fine it's not my job to hold them to that standard it's my Mm -hmm. job simply to speak about Kind of where I've come to around the consumption of sports. And the biggest dodge, the one that I really, it bugs me the most because I'm guilty of it the most, is this idea of like, I'm just a fan. I have nothing to do with this system. I just mm. watch a little bit of the game. Like, don't make, don't put me on the hook for it. And I'm always like, look, without you, you built it. Without you and an aggregation of views, there is no nfl there is no premier league there is no multi-million dollar owner or player to rail against there is no um you know kind of larger business we are the business and this is what capitalism is trying to do constantly is to try to divide us from the 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 moral decisions that we're making to make us feel somehow that our decisions around leisure time or consumption have nothing to do with the moral outcomes um of those decisions. And, you know, it's a, it's an unpleasant thing to say. It gets people's noses out of joint, but that's okay. Like we're in a pretty, I, in my view, we're in a pretty awful place culturally right now and politically and morally. And part of the reason is that we are not enough people are standing up and saying, actually, I'm going to go ahead and follow this, the moral implications out. I'm going to do a little bit more moral interrogation. Uh, of this situation and the fact that people might be scared off from doing that because their friends are going to be resentful. It's like, well then you need to reconsider how important that friendship is not to not be friends with that person, but maybe just not to engage with them in discussions about uh, you know, that, that for you feel important or principled and they they're coming at it from a different place. And ultimately I don't think you can change how other people uh, behave I mean, you certainly can't do it by wagging a finger at them, but what you can do is lead the life that you want to lead and pursue meaning in the ways that are important to you, and then maybe they'll come to that or they won't, but you'll find the people who come to it in the same way, hopefully.
0: Well, and it's likely that you'll find out a much better relationship with your friends if you can stick it out. I mean, you're much more likely to have in-depth conversations and engage in things and learn things about them that you might never have had the opportunity or or wanted to learn before. Now you're forced into a space where you kind of have to explore the depth and and breadth of humanity.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the friends who I I used to watch – you know football games with my neighbor Sean. I wrote about them in, in *Against Football*. And like now we do get together, and what we talk about is intense. And it is like the difficulty of of being of married life, of being a a, a parent, of being a partner, of work and its vicissitudes and what's happening. And, and the conversations are are intense and and even sort of exhausting. But they're also we're, we're actually, we've cut out the, the, the stuff that was just sort of filler to make us feel safe. We're, we're secure enough to just be able to get to the real stuff. And um, that, that is something that I feel like, life's short, man. You're only going to get so many opportunities on earth to connect with somebody, to talk about what's really going on in your life, in your inner life. And I'm mm. not, I, I just don't want to waste any more time on, mm. on childish stuff.
1: I like that phrase the acclimation or becoming acclimated to these perverse incentive systems as they're thrown in our face
2: and saying like,
1: No, I reject that. I'm I'm not gonna deal with it. I'm just not gonna do it. I yeah. like that a lot.
2: Yeah. And not only not, not like, hey, you're a you're a jerk for, for that, but just I can't I've lost the religion. Yeah. I can't ever quite get it back in the same way that you can, but man, you know. I get it, man. It it's it's like telling people, you know, I'm not trying to throw you out of church. I just have a different belief system.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh hopefully the uh Golden State Warriors can <laughs> get uh, get out of this mess that they're in. I think they'll be fine though.
2: You know, the th- the interesting thing is that even with that, like I sit there and and you know when they got kevin durant i thought ugh i get why everybody's yeah. you know pissed off and and like it isn't fair yeah. and yeah. you know when you start to think about things in this way i think hey they had a great run they won they they were the team that everybody was chasing and, and they were – I was 40 years in the desert with them through the the Joe Barry Carroll years and the Minute Bowl years and where they were just awful. And like I paid my penance and then they had these great years. And then those years are over and they're going to suck for a while. And you know what? That's fine. I yeah. devote less of my time to, to watching them. But when they start to you know get a scrappy team, maybe they can do something or just watching the individual achievement of a player like Steph Curry. I'll be back. I'll dip into it. But it won't be as fanatical because ultimately I do think that at the bottom of fandom, even though it's a profound experience and can make us feel very connected. The, the central feeling I had um, was a feeling of emptiness, mm-hmm. feeling that – that, and I don't want to say this in a mean way, but but I think if you know what I mean, there is this feeling of like I am watching other people live. I am watching other people jump and run and compete and so forth. And the question I was always left with afterwards, you know, this kind of residue almost masturbatory is how it felt, at least although at least with masturbation, I was doing it. But, you know, that feeling of somebody I'm I am just watching other people live and yep. need to spend more time living myself.
1: I can especially feel that way after watching like a complete Sunday round at a golf major. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. What was that? I can't believe I just got sucked in for that long. Right.
2: right. Yeah.
1: Um, well, We don't want to take up too much more of your time, Steve. Uh, we wanted to give you an opportunity. We kind of end each show with uh, talking very briefly about something that we're going to be paying attention to in the coming weeks in the sports and society world. Um and we're wondering if you kind of had anything that was on your radar that has piqued your interest that you'll just kind of be keeping an eye on, maybe some story or event or whatnot, yeah, uh, coming forward.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one thing that, well, maybe two two things. I think it's going to be interesting that the Super Bowl. I mean, the way that I see it now, against football came out in I think 2014, so this is you know six years ago now. And more and more, what I realized after writing is like how profoundly political Mm. uh, and and sort of moral our relationship to football is, and the way in which you could just connect the dots. Um, uh, You know, the fact that people were surprised that the one sort of safe space for for Trump is at a college football game, like, you just don't understand the way that football functions in our culture. Rupert Murdoch created a news station a news channel for football fans that's who he was aiming at Um, you know all this rhetoric about make america great again is 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 all about saying you know we need to be tough again we need to not be ashamed of our masculinity and our toughness and our aggression and even our sadistic impulses Um, you know that's really just being manly and defending yourself against a world that's inherently as evil as you are like that sort of Hobbesian view of the world is football's view of the world. And it's also the sort of GOP's view of the world. And I'm not saying that Democrats are some kind of angels and so forth, you know, but, but they have not wholesale given up on the idea that governance is about trying to improve the lives of citizens, right? Constituents, whether they voted for them or not. Like, I think that basic core principle is still in operation. Um, And, and I think largely, what we'll see in the Super Bowl is like the 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 marketing. What is Cheeto? You know, what ad is Cheeto's going to put on? Suddenly, there's going to be the collision of there going to be political ads in the Super Bowl. And to me, the Super Bowl is like one giant political ad. If you see mm-hmm. what I mean, yeah, and it yeah. is encouraging a kind of way of thinking about things where the only where everything's tribal and divided, and uh, the the only thing that's meaningful is conflict and and there being a winner and a loser and how that how that's going to happen it's really the enemy of any idea of collectivism. And in fact, collectivism is something that would be elitist or, you know, you'd be as much of a pansy if you talked about that as if you talked about Van Gogh. And that's really um, like, you know, that that's the big thing that's on my radar as we think about 2020. And I like look at these headlines, like, you know, more gut punches from Sanders to Warren. It's like, The way that the media treats politics now is all as a big sporting event. And um, unless we can get away from that frame, that way of thinking about things, we're not going to be telling a story about politics and civic engagement as a way of trying to make things better and alleviate suffering. You know, we're just going to be talking about winning and losing. And um, I think to me, that's... The big thing that i'm always keeping my eye on is how much football hasn't just come to dominate american culture it really has colonized it or mm-hmm. it is the purest expression of kind of who we've become as a people and here's the result we we are at war with one another and you know it's sort of who can get the most violent first and that to me feels like antithetical to 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 how the republic was founded i might be wrong about that maybe i'm being deluded obviously there was all kinds of abominations at the time of the founding of the country but the idea was that it would be this more perfect union that would be um you know eventually anyway would live up to these ideals of equal opportunity and so forth and it feels like it's become one big fucking football game at this point so that's what i have my eye on (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, a- antithetical at least or in- into what we can be and antithetical to the hope that we can be better, right?
2: Yeah, like, I think the way like, I would put hope. Did, like, is what I'm thinking about this year especially is like, how do I convert from anguish to action? How do I go from being a fan, an aggrieved fan of what's happening in our country to an actual participant in the democracy for whatever that means, whatever candidate or cause you want to advocate for, do something because if you don't, you're stuck watching this mess as, as sort of just as a fan. And I really feel like the, the you know I, know, I know your podcast is really about fandom, but to me it's like, well, democracy is not a, 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 a fan participant arrangement. Everybody's supposed to be a participant. There aren't supposed to be any fans. Everybody Mm -hmm. as a citizen is supposed to actually be to convert their anguish into action. And that means everybody, not just people who agree with me, but everybody. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm going to have my eye on is to see whether um, people can can move from feeling anguished and aggrieved and throwing things at the TV or rooting for one side uh, or the other to to actively participating in the process. And I'm praying that lots of people Mm -hmm. do that.
1: Well, here's the hope into that. I love that. Yeah. Brad, do you have any anything well,
0: else? I, uh, I'm this coming week particularly interested in uh, the Australian Open and the Tour Down Under, particularly under the guise of climate change and how that's going to views oh. my understanding and appreciation of these two sporting events that I love um, and the tragic events that's happened down there. So. That'll be what I'm keeping my eye on. But um, I'm also, from the more democratic side, I'm in Virginia, and so I'm quite nervous about what's happening in our state capital at the moment. Um, So uh, all of these things uh, coming together in a way that uh, I don't quite know how to make sense of things is is, uh, always not the most fun place to be.
1: Well, as is often the case, Brad, we land on similar things, which makes for very uninteresting listening because I also am paying attention to the Australian Open uh, underneath the, the, the literal um, ash and dust of climate change. And so in addition to paying uh, as close attention as I can to what we can do about it and how we can be involved in it, uh, it's also, I think, interesting to watch how it's covered in particular and what sort of outlets are taking the angle that they are. Uh, I find to be really interesting. So that uh, ESPN so far is uh, obsessed with player health is interesting. Uh, while not completely turning away from the complex problems they're in uh that player health is in the forefront i think is interesting whereas an outlet like the guardian is obviously taking a much different kind of longer view and more dire view um so how it's being covered i I think is interesting but Mm -hmm. at any rate i think we'll wrap up there we are extremely grateful for the time and conversation steve i really really enjoyed it
0: yeah me too guys it was great to talk thank
2: you
1: yeah thank
0: you all for listening to sports and society and a big thank you to steve allman for joining us this week um great to have your insights and uh, really appreciate uh, the conversation we've had here today uh, if anybody's interested please give us a rating and review uh, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts thank you all